Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Calling, a podcast where I speak to caregivers and clinical leaders about how they were called to work in healthcare. We'll talk about what they love about being a clinician, the challenges in this line of work, and what makes them keep doing what they do despite those challenges. I'm your host, Dr. David Kim, Chief Executive of the Providence Clinic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Calling, a podcast where I speak to caregivers and clinical leaders about how they were called to work in healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. David Kim, Chief Executive of the Providence Clinical Network. On this episode of The Calling, we're talking about the joys of medicine and strategies to fight burnout and caregiver fatigue that is so common in our workplaces today. We'll also discuss how to find joy again in our medical careers and what we're doing outside of work that brings us happiness. And here with me today is Dr. Elizabeth Waco, Interim President and CEO of Swedish Health Services. So thanks for spending time with us, uh, Dr. Waco. When I think about, and I tell you this all the time, physician leaders I admire the most, you are at the top of the list. Um, I think that uh, there's just so many things about you that I admire and um, both in your leadership and just how you show up in the day to day. But as we get started, like tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Waco? And then we'll take it from there. All right. Well, first, David, you are way too generous with your compliments. <laughs> uh, but I so appreciate you and working with you. Um, so it, it makes it easy to partner. Okay, so I am a physician, anesthesiologist. Uh, I also am a nurse, and I'm also an administrator. Um, and uh, my role with Providence now is the interim CEO and president of Swedish Health Services. And if you don't know Swedish Health Services, it is in the Puget Sound. It's um, a five hospital network, um, more than 110 primary care clinics and clinics um, all up and down the Puget Sound. Um, big research facility, over 800 research studies. Um, and uh, I've been at Swedish uh, for uh, a long time, uh, and I love it. I love it here. I love being with Providence, and I love the work that I do. What What do you love about Swedish? What I love about Swedish is uh, the people. Uh, just excellent. Like you, Swedish went and found the best clinicians out there, mm -hmm. uh, the best caregivers out there, and uh, put it all into one building. And people work incredibly well together. They support each other. There is a culture of excellence and safety just, just permeates the organization. And um, you know um, every day that you are delivering the best care that you can for the community. And I mean, that's just, it feels good. That, that, that's great there. It's, it's so good to be able to wear swag, right, with the name of your institution on it and really be proud when you when you go to Costco or you're at the grocery store, you know, to really let people know, like, that's that's who you're affiliated with, that's who you work with, and that's that's great to hear. Tell me a little bit about, um, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Like, um, what, did you play any sports with your kids? Like, <laughs> Wow. What you're, are some of your hobbies? You're, you're going back far. I'm going um, back far. I'm reaching deep. Yeah. You're reaching deep. Okay. So, um, well, I think a lot about uh, probably who I am today is uh, or comes from the fact that I immigrated to the United States when I was three months old. So uh, I am uh, probably uh, as 
as an immigrant, as American as it gets, seeing as I've lived a majority of my life here and I actually only speak English. Um, so uh, my mom was a nurse, uh, my father was a professor, and um, it, uh, I, I think it kind of helped uh, direct where I am and, and what I became. We lived all over the Midwest. Uh, we lived in Nebraska, we lived in Indiana, we lived in Michigan. I went to four different high schools um, and we finally arrived in um, Walla Walla, Washington, where my father um, had a tenure at Walla Walla College. And that is kind of how I grew up. What did he uh, teach? Uh, oh, he, my father's amazing. Um, he has multiple masters. So he taught sociology, social work, anthropology, um, uh, theology. So he was uh, well-read uh, and an excellent uh, professor. So when did you know healthcare was for you? When did that thought enter into your mind and heart? Um, well, uh, you know, you kind of follow your parents on some level. And uh, my mom, my mom was a nurse. She was an amazing nurse. Um, and, you know, in nursing, you, you know, I don't know how often you get recognized when you go out in the community as a nurse. But uh, my mom, you know, we lived in some small communities and um, uh, there weren't that many black people. So it was easy to recognize us. Um, but I remember uh people coming up to my mom and thanking her mm. for the care that she gave them. Um, and she was highly recognized. Um, she was nurse of the year, mm. um, multiple nursing awards. Um, and she, the way she would talk about her work um, and uh, the, the, her ability to connect with uh, people uh, and in in such a profound way in a time of need, uh, it really, I think, pushed me towards healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, uh, I kind of knowing, knowing about her and what she did um, made me want to become a nurse. But I think once I went into nursing school, um, I think what really solidified my desire to go into medicine was, um, was really my sister. So my sister actually went to nursing school with me. She's a year older than me. Um, and when we moved to Walla Walla, so remember I said we lived all over and then we moved to Walla Walla. It was, um, we moved my senior year of high school. So I finished high school and then, and then went to Walla Walla. And um, uh, I, uh, me and my sister both uh, started nursing school and my sister had been um, sick kind of a majority of her life. Uh, probably since she was uh, 12 and kind of undiagnosed. Um, and remember, my mom is a nurse. My mom is an ICU nurse at this point. And so um, obviously she had somebody to heavily advocate for her. Um, uh, but she just um, just kind of had an undiagnosed illness. Um, so when we moved to Walla Walla, she pretty quickly went to go establish care with a primary care doc. And the doc was um, actually Susan, Dr. Thompson. And um, she went to go see her. And I actually think that, uh, I mean, I was young back then. So you know, you know, your memory fades as you get older. Uh, but I think she's a family practice doc. And I think she was pretty early in her career. 
And, uh, you know, Ruthie went to go see her. Ruth, Ruthie's my sister. Her name's Ruth, but we call her Ruthie. Um, she went to go see her and um, uh, she um, shared with her kind of her symptoms. And historically, um, when my sister would kind of have a conversation about what was going on with her, um, you know, all of her symptoms were really kind of marginalized because she was overweight. Um, and so, um, you know, she kind of, I think my sister probably felt like it was probably going to be the same thing again, but, you know, she was going to go through the process. And so she um, met with Dr. Thompson, but Dr. Thompson like sat down um, and really listened to her and looked at her. And um, she is the first person that actually um, had some suspicion about what might be going on with my sister. And she suspected, and she was correct that uh, Ruthie had Cushing's disease. Wow. Yeah. So she has a How tumor. old is your sister at this point? She is 19. Wow. And so she has, um, if you don't know Cushing's disease for your audience, it is a tumor on your pituitary gland that mm -hmm. secretes steroids. And you know what the steroids do? They make you overweight. And they kind of um, give you this trunco obesity. Mm -hmm. So this obesity that's kind of in your abdomen. You have these stretch marks and they say, and then kind of a, a buffalo hump, which is what they call it, which is basically a fatty deposits on your neck. And literally my sister was textbook. Like if you had a picture of Cushing's disease and you put my sister next to it, you could see easily that that's what she had. And I mean, ultimately, you know, she wasn't diagnosed or she had a significant delay in diagnosis because everybody just looked at her and she was black and she was overweight. And, you know, that is, um, and if, Dr. Thompson had never sat down with her. She would have gone probably undiagnosed um, for quite a long period of time. And I think that's when I realized, so I was in nursing school. That's when I realized that um, healthcare is really kind of controlled by the physician. It's mm. controlled by the person that you're seeing to make the diagnosis. And, and it was a pretty uh, um, kind of um, changing, life-changing moment for yeah. me and changed the direction, I think, of my career. So did you work as a nurse or did you mm -hmm. go to med school? I worked as a nurse. So um, I finished nursing school, but then I had to get um, uh, uh, a bachelor's degree. Uh, and so I got a BS um, at the University of Washington. So I moved from Walla Walla to the University of Washington and then worked. And so I worked five years as a nurse. Um, I was a psychiatric nurse. I worked in involuntary psychiatric um, um, medicine and I loved it. And I worked up until the day I got into medical school, moved to go to medical school and um, stopped nursing. And I kept my nursing license forever. I didn't actually give up my nursing license, I think, until I, I passed boards. So <laughs> <laughs> Keep your bases covered. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I think I might have still kept up with it, but I couldn't like I didn't have, I, you know, you had to have CME and such. And so I had to let go. Um. So you become a doctor, you go into anesthesia, mm -hmm. practicing, you did a periop fellowship, is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You come to Swedish working on a lot of periop work, mm -hmm. and you're learning how to be a great doctor. Uh, how do you fall into administration? Mm. Well, it kind of happens that way. You do just kind of fall into administration. So I... Um, 
Okay, so let me go back a little bit as to maybe why I got the perioperative fellowship. So I uh, became, you know, I trained to be an anesthesiologist, and I mean, I love anesthesia. The the nice thing about anesthesia, when you're somebody like me who, um, you know, wants to like implement change immediately, is as an anesthesiologist, you actually push your own drive. Mm-hmm. So you you don't have to give an order because you can do everything yourself, and you immediately see the effects of what you're doing. So it's very it's a reward immediate immediate reward specialty. Um, so it's great. Um, but what I did realize is kind of after I got out, and it's a grind, you know, medical school and then residency, and you kind of come out and you put your head up and you realize, okay, well, I got to this place, but is this where I wanted to be? Because remember, like, I, you know, I wanted to go into healthcare to like make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, make a difference in, in the care that my sister got. Mm-hmm. And, and what I kind of realized was anesthesia is one-on-one. And obviously I knew that and it, it appeals to a certain part of me, but I knew that if I wanted to do more, I needed to actually get out of the operating room. So that's kind of why I did the preoperative yeah. fellowship is because it got me out of the operating room and in the hospital, in a place where, you know, I, you know, I have more opportunity um, to make a difference as opposed to maybe the one-on-one. And so um, when I finished my residency, I actually started working at Harborview, which is a hospital in Seattle. Um, and uh, it's a community hospital in Seattle. I really enjoyed working at Harborview. It's a, it has a great spirit. Um, and I probably would have stayed at Harborview, except for the fact that they wanted me to sign on to be permanent faculty. And to be permanent faculty had a significant non-compete. And Swedish is like literally a block away from Harborview. So I thought, well, before I go down academics for the rest of my life, let me go try private practice. So I go up the street, try private practice, and then pretty immediate. I mean, I get hired on pretty immediately. I'm running their pre-op clinic because mm-hmm. it was help. and I was managing it for all five hospitals. And then at that point, um, they were looking for a CMO for the first Hill campus, which is kind of the flagship campus downtown. Now, and- how many years into your anesthesia career are you at this point? Five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the the leaders, the CEO at that time and the CMO at that time approached me and asked me to apply for the role. And I remember thinking, well, I feel like, you know, this is something that will happen a little bit later in my career. I felt like it was a little early in the career um, because historically, you know, CMOs were very much um, kind of shepherders of the mm-hmm. medical staff. And, um, uh, you know, I felt like, oh, I, I didn't have the gravitas to really kind of uh, do that. Uh, but, you know, they're like, medicine is changing. And, you know, we we need to, as physicians, kind of lean into operations. And that is something you're good at. And so we really feel like you have the skills that we need for this role. And so I applied. And that's how I ended up in administration is uh, becoming the CMO First Hill. And I was in the role less than a year, less than a year. And um, we were um, talking about a program that we wanted to develop and, um I was working on a performa and uh, I just remember getting a lot of pushback from um, the CFO. And that is kind of the moment where I realized that, um, you know, as a physician, your, um, your span of control only goes so far, but to really kind of get to that next step, I needed an MBA. So that's when I went back to school to get an MBA. So really this, consistent pattern of I want to make things better and I want to fix things and how do I do that most effectively it's a pretty consistent theme throughout all of those 
those stages of your professional life. Yes, you are correct. So uh, my personal experience has been being a CMO and being a chief executive. So going from the, you know, the chief clinical lead to a PNL owner is very different. Yes. How, how has that experience been? Um, well, I think it's been pretty enlightening. I feel like being a clinician and uh, kind of being on the administrator business side of it has given me um, a leg up and insight into what we do um, in a way that a, uh, an administrator that hasn't done clinical care um, uh, would struggle to achieve. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not as easy um, as it is, and especially easier for me because I was a nurse first too. So I've lived through kind of all aspects of care. So, um, you know, when a problem is presented, it is much easier for me to see the path and kind of um, uh, kind of figure out how to navigate through the weeds to, to get to the end. So, you know, I think um, one of the joys in medicine is is a little bit of what you talked about is you use expertise and skill to intervene and you know, diagnose, intervene and treat, and then people's lives get better. They're healthier or they do better through the surgery. One of the questions people often ask me is, is, you know, you went through all of that training and you went through all of that mm -hmm. experience and then you don't, you don't see patients anymore. And then there's always a puzzle, like, why would you do that? Um, how do you answer? I'm sure people ask you that same question. How, how do you answer that for people? Oh, well, so it's, it's, a, it's a matter of scale. So I would say, personally, there is nothing like providing care for a patient. There's nothing like having your own patient. You have a relationship with another human being that is not comparable to any relationship that exists. Right. I actually think maybe clergy are as, probably as close as you get. But even then, um, so that is, that is why we do what we do um, as physicians. So moving into administration, you take a step back from that and you take a step back from that kind of, you know, gratification of knowing that you're doing the right thing every single day and um, it becomes more removed. But what you have the ability to do in administration is if you can kind of give up that, um, that uh, kind of immediate uh, gratification, you place yourself in a position where uh, you make a significant difference for many people. So now, instead of providing one-on-one -on -one care to that patient in the OR, now a program comes in front of me. And um, I'm thinking about one of the last programs that I have, which um, served um, pregnant women with chemical dependency. And this program is losing millions and millions of dollars. And it's sat on your desk about to make a decision about what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. So now I can say, we're keeping this program. We're going to modify it. We're going to do some things to make it more um, economical, but even at a loss, we're going to keep this program because it's meaningful. It makes a difference. And um, in the end, it is what we stand for. And so to, to be able to make a decision at that scale, for me, it's worth giving up 
what I'm missing from those one-on-one -on -one interactions. As a fellow physician executive, that is inspiring to hear. It really is. Every time I talk to him, I'm consistently reminded of how much of why I admire you and what you do. And that's just a perfect example of that, that story. You know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, we became friends a couple of years ago, I think before, probably for both of us several positions ago, as I think, yeah. Um, we've had a bunch of uh, more than one bleary-eyed, you know, at the end of a long day, mm -hmm. uh, the 13th or 14th meeting of the day. And I think what we've experienced, uh, you know, supporting caregivers and physicians that went through just an awful time through COVID. Mm -hmm. And then the post-COVID world is, is hard in a way that I think many of us didn't anticipate. We thought once COVID passed, we'd go back to some measure of pre-COVID world, and it just hasn't been the case for many mm -hmm. different reasons. When you look at why burnout is such a, um, a thing that's on top of mind for people, where so many physicians and caregivers and clinicians are struggling with burnout, what, what's your diagnosis? What, what do you think is at the root of that burnout? And not to oversimplify it, I'm, it's yeah. a multifactorial thing, but when, as, as, a, as a leader and as a clinician, like where does your heart and mind go to when, when you ask that question? I think, um, I think it's, um, I think you have a disconnect between um, why you went into medicine and then what you're actually doing. And uh, you, you went into medicine to, to make a difference, to um, care for your fellow mankind. Um, and um, now you're, you have um, the pressure of, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's, you know, getting your, you know, your patient visit done in 10 minutes. It's all the stresses of um, the business side of healthcare just weighs on you. And then you lose, you lose why you got into it in the first place. And you lose the opportunity to kind of connect with the patients in, in the way that was soul fulfilling. And once you lose that, then it feels like work. And the work we do is hard. Yeah. If you don't have it in your soul anymore, it's hard to work for 10 hours. Yeah. Well, one of the words I use that I've been describing that seems to resonate with, with people in healthcare that, that are in the, you know, and the, on the ground providing the care is you know, so much of society is commoditizing medicine, mm -hmm. right? It's transactional. Mm -hmm. Talk about consumers. You know, I always tell people getting healthcare is very different than buying a vacuum cleaner, right? And one one recent thing I kind of came up with that I was proud of was this: you know, patients aren't consumers, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about consumerism and how we serve patients, right? Yeah. Um, but but we can't conflate those two things to be the same thing. Um, so if that disconnect and that and that kind of distance from the joy of medicine is real, how do we find our way back? What are things that you and I and others can practically and tangibly do in the short term, intermediate and long term to bring that joy of medicine back to those that we work alongside with and support? I think it's, uh, I think in the end, it's not about the diagnosis. I think we are all, we're, we're so 
quick to try to get to the diagnosis when, you know, maybe it's just the connection. Maybe that first meeting isn't about the diagnosis. Maybe that first meeting is about, I'm just going to get to know you as a human being. I'm going to get to know your family. I'm going to understand the situation that you're in. Um, and focus less on um, the getting to the cure. Because I don't know if you can get to the cure if you don't know the person. Yes. Yes, I can't. I couldn't agree with that more. I think there is a loss of connection in that commoditization that hollows us out. And like at the end of those long days, you know, it's just so hard to reconnect to that joy unless you have that connection. Um, so what do you do that fills your cup after a long day or a long week? Well, I spend time with my family. My kids are quite entertaining. <laughs> so um, they they definitely uh, fill my cup. And um, How many kids? I have four. So between two careers, maybe more, a nursing career, a doctor career, a clinical career, an administrative career, you squeezed in four time for four children. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> They're worth it, though. They are. I'm sure they are. <laughs> They're definitely I've seen pictures. Worth. You have a beautiful family. Um, so spending time with your family, what else What else fills your cup? I think just taking a mental break. Um, I'm a bit of an introvert, so sometimes I just need to be alone and, mm -hmm. you know, um, reading or um, just something that, that takes me out of the space that I'm in, um, takes my brain, because you know all of us, our brains are constantly going, um, you know, looking for answers. And so something that can distract me from that, mm -hmm. reading is, is generally what I'll do as opposed to watching TV, because that's stressful <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, and cooking. I actually really like cooking. Oh, what kind of food do you cook? I cook all types of food, but I love making Ethiopian food, so... Um, I'll, I'll make that and, who and you, taught know, and you then, how to make who taught you how to make Ethiopian food your mom my mom yeah my mom my dad's a pretty good cook too oh really yeah that's fantastic um well I just want to thank you Elizabeth like uh it, it is really a joy to hear about your journey and both as a friend as a colleague and as someone who in some senses watches your career from you know both close and far I just want to thank you for all that you do I I think the example that you set and the leadership that you exemplify is um, extraordinary. And I think everyone who knows you would agree with me. And I'm hoping that this podcast really allows that scope of breadth of people who can experience you and get to know you to be a little broader. Because the more people know Dr. Waco, I think the better off we as Providence and as Swedish are. So um, I, I really appreciate the time. You're so welcome. And uh, any compliment coming from you, someone <laughs> who is exceptional in and of himself is, is worth a lot. So I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on The Calling. We look forward to continuing the conversation on why caregivers and clinical leaders do the work they do and how we can keep the joy in caregiving. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. Please note that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. 
You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And in Providence, we see the life in